0: Hey friends! This episode of the Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Merlot University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. In today's episode, we're going to do part two of our pharmacology overviews lecture, a breakdown of this nebulous topic into bite-sized pieces that hopefully makes it easier for all of us. I know it's definitely helping me out because I can't keep these straight at all.
1: Yeah, for sure. Me too. I mean, being a benign hematologist, uh, I don't don't give a lot of chemo, but so this has been a helpful review for me too.
2: And I think the hardest thing for me when I started fellowship was Learning this new language of medicines. And what I love about the way this episode's going to go for you guys is that we give you a very simple way to recognize these drugs based on the way that, that the names of the drugs themselves. And you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about as we go through it, but we really tried to think of a clean way for people to understand the high yield concepts for pharmacology before you get into the more of the details with your pharmacist and as you go through actually giving these patients chemotherapy. And to highlight that last point,
0: Your pharmacists are going to be your best friends. If you're about to start fellowship, if you're in fellowship, you probably agree. And if you're in attending, you probably agree even more. So, um, you know, our hope is just that you take away the highlights. But, you know, for the details and the nuances, make sure you talk to your pharmacists if there's ever a question of doubt. So, I guys, I think we should not keep our listeners waiting too long. Let's go ahead and get to that episode. Let's do it.
2: All right guys, how are we feeling today? Feeling very refreshed. I just got back from my honeymoon in Mexico, so I'm I'm doing good, got a lot of sun, got very tan, but you know, doing great. Yeah,
1: I wondered if that was just a, a trick of the light, but yeah, you do. You, you got a nice glow.
0: I I was looking at your your wife's Instagram post and I was convinced that you had been there a lot more than a week and low key was nervous that you were never gonna come back. So I'm glad I'm glad that you are back. Um But, but I'm glad you had a good time as well.
2: Yeah, it was great. If I could recommend one thing and, you know, again, they're not sponsoring us, but maybe they will soon. Excellence Resort, Playa Mujeres. Very, very great, all-inclusive stay in Cancun, Mexico. Highly recommend. Very nice. Vivek, out of
0: curiosity, because of your obsession with Topo Chico, what is the take on that drink down in Mexico? Is it as popular down there as it is up here? Dude, there was no
2: Topo Chico down there. It, it mm. Sparkling water wasn't as big of a thing, at least at the all-inclusive resort. But, you know, they had they had pretty good mojitos, etc. you know. I had some nice fruity drinks on the beach, so it's just a good time. it's that true. Maybe awesome. it's
1: like the HMO of, of hotels, right? Like, they they're, they're got capitated payments, so they're not trying to bring in the brand name. They're not trying to bring in, you know, the Lipitor. They're getting you a Torvastatin every time.
2: And I'm fine with it. I'm totally down. All right, guys.
0: Well, on that note, (laughs) um, I think we should we should talk about part two of our pharmacology lecture. A couple weeks ago, you know we we were chatting about an overview of you know the language of of. of chemotherapy. And I'm super excited for this episode where we kind of delve in this a little bit more, talk a little bit more about the individual agents that, w- that we use in the clinic on a daily basis. And for our listeners and for their purposes, reminding them of, of ways to remember all this stuff, because it is a lot
2: and it's so much, and today we're going to focus more, we, we split it up last week into the broad categories of types of treatment we give for patients with cancer. And in this episode, we're really going to focus on those cytotoxic chemotherapy, traditional chemotherapy drugs, because they're very common and the most common agents that we use across all cancer subtypes.
1: Yeah, I mean, these are the first real drugs that we had to even to, to treat cancers, uh, you know, dating back to the earliest days of, really effective cancer therapy. And uh, I think it's kind of a a remarkable thing that we're still using them. You know, despite all the advances we've had in targeted therapies, there are some diseases where these cytotoxic agents really are your best bet.
2: So, I want to start us off with a case so that way we can really get into the core concepts that we're going to discuss today. Recently at the Veterans Hospital at Rula University Medical Center, I had a female patient, young female patient, who was 42 years old, who came in with breast cancer. And unfortunately, on her biopsy, she had triple negative breast cancer. And I had planned neoadjuvant chemotherapy treatment with something called dose-dense ACT. And we're going to really break down that regimen. But the first thing that that my patient asked me was, she said, hey, well, I need to get a port for this. So guys, can we talk a little bit about when you need a port and why you would need a port?
0: A hundred percent. And if either of you have any insight into that, I would love to know, because I never really know what to tell people about if they need ports or if they can use a, a, if a pick line is fine or even just a peripheral IV. Yeah. And the
1: way I kind of think about it, and uh, you can tell me uh, both of you, if you, if this makes sense to y'all, but I think there are certain indications where you really need central access and you need to have a reliable way to get into those large vessels, and there are others where you need a durable intravenous connection, you know, be it peripheral or, or central, and for those, I'm thinking of things like very harsh chemical agents that need to be delivered into large vessels because they're going to sclerose the smaller vessels that the peripheral IV goes into, and infusions that take a really long time, so these are drugs that are infused over the course of several days with each cycle. And and those are, I think, the hard indications. But there are sort of these softer indications where if a patient's just going to be getting a lot of IV sticks, they may express a preference for something like a port uh, that can be a little bit more comfortable to access and um, or there are other folks that have just notoriously difficult veins to access and they may opt for a port if they know it's going to be a struggle every time they need an IV stick for an infusion.
2: Yeah, I I love the way you said that, because it took me the longest time to understand when my patient needed a port. And exactly like you're saying, we get into this concept of vesicants versus irritants, these chemicals that, or these drugs, rather, these chemotherapy agents that when we give them to patients, if, could they cause very severe tissue injury if they left the vein? And would they be very toxic to the endothelium of the vasculature itself? And that's where we get this concept of vesicants versus irritants. It's really hard to just memorize ves- which ones are vesicants, which ones are irritants when you're starting fellowship and really starting to get to know these chemotherapy agents. So I would always look this up. There's always something, a resource that you can find. You know, we don't subscribe to any particular resource, but like, like we said, one option is something like the the hemock.org website that we referenced in, in our last discussion. That has something on vesicants versus irritants. But a quick Google search of vesicant or irritant chemotherapy, you'll see a list. And anytime you hear the word vesicant, you need a port. So you always need a port with vesicant. And a vesicant is defined by an agent that causes severe tissue injury if the extravasation occurred. So you'd want to give that in a large central vein, whether that be a pick line or a port. If it's just an irritant chemotherapy drug, you don't necessarily need a, a central access because you're not as worried about that endothelial damage to the vasculature and the tissue damage if there is extravasation that occurs. So that's really one of the big distinctions is how toxic is this chemotherapy to the surrounding tissue and the vasculature and the second thing that dan said is that the big big important point is the length of time of infusion if it's a continuous infusion over several days you got to have that port because otherwise the patient can't go home and y- you the only way for them to go home is to have a portable way for them to go home through a port which is essentially just central access
0: so i think you guys have sold me on the idea of central access i mean i don't really see the downside then right if if Why would you even run the risk of something extravasating if you could just put a port in everybody, keep it simple, keep the lab jobs easy, provide access? It seems like a no-brainer. Oh, and I think, you know,
1: there are really a lot of advantages, but everything in medicine is going to have an upside and a downside. And with ports, you do have to think about The process of getting one in. So if you have a patient who you really just want to get started on therapy right away, say you have, uh, you know, that small cell lung cancer patient with, with diffuse disease and their performance status is just teetering on the, you know, on the edge of where you might be able to continue to treat them. You may not want to wait that few days that it could take to get a port placement procedure scheduled. You know, usually these big academic centers will be able to get those procedures done really quickly. But sometimes you just want to get the chemo in right now. Now, that said, a port can usually be used the same day as it's placed, which is something I didn't realize until I started fellowship. But still, you got to think about the timing. And then there are risks to just having a foreign body that's persistently in a, in a blood vessel. Granted, large vessels, there is a lot of blood flow around there. Anyone who's been in a cardiac OR can tell you tons of blood is flowing through the, the SVC and the IVC. But, you know, having persistent foreign body, that's a risk for thrombogenesis, for uh, a thrombus forming at the tip of that catheter. And uh, additionally, you know, if somebody were to have the misfortune of developing bacteremia, like a, having a gram-positive infection while they're immunosuppressed, thinking about that foreign material as, an, as a nidus for persistent infection, as somewhere where it's going to be really hard to eradicate infection once it develops. You know, generally speaking, as long as these ports are cared for well— the risk for infection is relatively low, but it, it, it's never zero. And, um, you know, these patients, like I said, are going to be immune suppressed. And, and uh, that's something you really have to talk about with patients.
0: So it sounds like a good first step whenever you're introducing the idea of chemotherapy to a new patient is, is talking about access and talking about, you know, getting that whole process set up in case they need a port. But, you know, kind of switching gears a little bit, then I assume the next part is moving to the actual chemotherapy you know, as we alluded to last time, there are so many different combinations of drugs that you can use and the alphabet soup of chemotherapies is quite extensive. But I'm just curious in general when you guys talk about chemotherapies, do you have certain side effects that you like to bring up to warn patients about in advance?
2: Yeah, definitely. And I'm going to go back to to my case where I told her, you know, here's the plan for chemotherapy. We're going to give you this regimen called dose-dense ACT. And as you're going through each of these individual drugs, there's a laundry list of side effects. And we talked about in the last episode how to look up the side effects, how to figure out which regimen you're going to use, things like that, and what a cycle means. And you explain all of that to the patient. But now we're getting into how do we recognize what drug is what. So in general, when I talk to patients, all of these chemotherapy drugs in general cause some GI issues, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, or constipation any of the combination of those things, decreased appetite, maybe some taste changes. And the big thing is low blood counts with the nadir generally around 10 to 14-ish days and the recovery around 21 to 28 days. And I tell that to all the patients that they'll have likely have low blood counts depending on the chemotherapy regimen, the GI issues, the decreased appetite, and the degree to which of these side effects patients will get depends on the specific agent. And then in addition to that, each of these specific agents have their own unique side effects. So what I just gave you at first were just the general side effects. And I think one of the big things I want to impress onto people is that each class of chemotherapeutic agents has a different degree of these side effects. And in general, when we're thinking about low blood counts after chemo, the nadir is generally around that 10-day period, and generally you recover to normal counts at, at about 21 days. So let's go with this patient. So when I started with her for this dose-dense regimen, and dose-dense, we'll talk about why that's important here in a little bit, but she was getting, one of the drugs she was getting was doxorubicin. So Dan, how, what is doxorubicin and, and what class of drugs, and how can you easily remember the class of drugs that doxorubicin belongs to?
1: Yeah, so doxorubicin is an anthracycline. Most of the anthracyclines that we'll use uh, in our clinical practice are going to end in the suffix rubicin. so that's doxorubicin, idorubicin. the The exception there is something called mitoxantrone, which uh, is in that same class. But for the by and large, you're going to be seeing rubicin at the end of those at the end of these drugs. These drugs, generally speaking, when they're in solution, they look toxic. They look very intense. Doxorubicin is bright red in its sort of liposomal form. It's bright purple. Uh, these look like things that shouldn't be going in in the peripheral vessels, and and that is true. Uh, so these are vesicants, They need to go in, in, through a central line. Some people do call it the red devil because of its color, and uh, and also because it it tends to have some certain notorious side effects. It, it can drive the counts down pretty low, and uh, but but that said, it is useful in a large number of cancers. It is uh, a topoisomerase inhibitor. So it's, it's something that's going to prevent DNA from unspooling properly, and which is a really key uh, component of both protein expression and DNA replication. So yeah, it, it tends to be pretty broadly toxic in a lot of different tumors.
0: And the one thing that I always remember about anthracyclines is from that chemo man that we learned for the step one exam. And so doxorubicin or donorubicin was the D for the heart. Um, And so I often worry about and remember actually that it can cause heart failure as one of the unique side effects. And so whenever we're starting our patients on any sort of anthracycline, making sure that we have an echo or a MUGA scan uh, in order to ensure that, you know, they don't have already poor cardiac function to start with, and certainly gives us a baseline before you put them on the medication. And then other side effects that we sometimes think about is the possibility of MDS or leukemias, typically many, many, many years after exposure. But it's something to definitely keep in mind if someone was treated with an anthracycline really early on in life and then later develops uh, cytopenias. And you know, that
1: that heart failure and that, that cardiac toxicity, rather, that's something that's cumulative too. So these anthracyclines do tend to have lifetime limits on on how much we can give. If you go and talk to some sarcoma doctors out there, those limits maybe are a little flexible depending on what disease you're treating. But you also have to keep in mind that these limits were set back in the era before modern echocardiography. So there are other folks out there that'll tell you these, these limits are probably kind of an overestimate of how much is safe. But just remember that it's, it's a cumulative thing over, over a lifetime of exposure.
2: So I just wanted to recap that. So we have anthracyclines ends rubicin. So anything like doxorubicin, donorubicin, idarubicin, generally, those are the things. It uh, is red in solution, so you might hear patients call it the red devil, causes cytopenias, has a little bit higher nausea potential, and is one of those ones that causes hair loss. So that's one of the things I told my patient who's who's a younger female that, yeah, I'm sorry, but this is one of the ones that causes hair loss. And the unique side effects are the later development of heart failure and possibly a development of something like an MDS or a leukemia later on. Classically, sometimes you'll hear people say two to three years after exposure, but that doesn't always follow the rules. And like Ronick said, it can happen years down the road as a treatment-related MDS or AML. So the next thing in, in my patient's regimen was a uh, was the C. So A was for the anthracycline, for, the, for that doxorubicin. The C... Is for cyclophosphamide. So, Ronak, what do you think about think, agents like cyclophosphamide?
0: Yeah, so that falls into our next category of alkylating agents, and so these are, as as Vivek alluded to, are the drugs that end in the suffix phosphamide. So things like ifosfamide or cyclophosphamide. We often call cyclophosphamide cytoxan. That's another name. And to be honest. I forgot that a lot when we started fellowship. I thought they were two separate drugs, but I later found out they're the same thing. This is also used in a lot of different types of cancers. These, unfortunately, also cause cytopenias and hair loss. And the side effects that we worry about with with the alkylating agents are also things like MDS or leukemia, similar to what we see uh, with the anthracyclines. But specifically for ifosfamide, that is known to cause uh, neurotoxicity. And if anybody develops neurotoxicity while they're getting ifosfamide, we use methylene blue as the antidote. And then cyclophosphamide, again, going back to our chemo man, that was the one that formed the the bladder on the chemo man. And so cyclophosphamide is known to cause hemorrhagic cystitis. And that's because of this byproduct called acrolein that develops uh, when the drug is metabolized. And so, what you all need to remember and take away is that if someone's on cyclophosphamide, you need to make sure that they're also getting this medication called mesna. And that is to help protect the bladder from the effects of um, the hemorrhagic cystitis due to the
2: acrolein byproduct
0: accumulation.
2: And that was wonderful, Ronick. And, and, I, and I talked to this patient about the, the side effects of this cyclophosphamide. So phosphamide, ifosphamide, cyclophosphamide are these alkylating agents, like Ronick beautifully said. The other agent that this patient was getting was the T, and this is actually given after they get a combination of the first two agents that we talked about, that doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide, they then get single agent T, which is in this case called taxol or paclitaxel. So Dan, tell us a little bit more about what that class of drug means. Sure.
1: Yeah, so this uh, falls into category of taxanes. And generally, they all have the, that tax in them somewhere. It comes from where we get these drugs. They're actually found in, um, in the U tree, which has the genus Taxus. That's why, they, that's why we call them taxanes. And so they are microtubule agents. They, they stop the polymerization of, of the microtubule units. But in any event, the taxanes, like docetaxel, paclitaxel, and the um, protonated form nab-paclitaxel or abraxane, are all within this class. And there, uh the big sort of toxicity that I think of in this class of microtubule agents is um neurotoxicity. So remember that the microtubule is also really important for neurons. So these drugs never, ever, ever can go into the CSF space. And uh also do have, I think, a risk of hair loss as well. But neuropathy really is the big one on this, and that tends to be the dose-limiting toxicity. I believe you can also get some GI neuropathy, which can cause constipation, but we tend to think of the peripheral neuropathy, both sensory and eventually motor, as being as being the major issue.
2: And, and I think that's huge because whenever we talk about chemotherapy side effects to patients, one of the biggest things that we need to know is what do people care about? Hair loss is a big thing. It's a big thing in many people's lives neuropathy is a big thing. I mean, it's to the point where we consider some degrees of neuropathy where patients can't button up a shirt. And it can be severe in in these cases when they're getting these medicines. So remember, microtubule agents have tax on them, like Dan said, so like taxol, docetaxel, paclitaxel, Another type of microtubule agent that doesn't fit that is vincristine, so something with a steen, v steen, or v so vincristine, then blastine. These are other examples of this class. And if you're going to remember anything, if you see tax, docetaxel, paclitaxel, think neuropathy because that is a big thing that we want to educate our patients about and to look for ourselves when we're giving patients these medications, which is exactly what I told the patient when I gave her these drugs So breaking away from this patient a little bit, I just wanted to round out the discussion of of two other major classes of drugs that we give in chemotherapy. Uh, So one of them is the platinum agents. Ronick, do you want to talk a little bit about the platinum agents? Sure. And so these
0: agents are going to end in platin, uh, so like oxaliplatin or or carboplatin. Um, And, you know, the biggest things we think about these as well is also there is some degree of neuropathy. I love, I keep going back to chemo man. I can't help it, but, and we will include a a picture of chemo man in case you're not familiar, but this, you know, from from chemo man, I remember the the C in in cisplatin and carboplatin for the ears of the man as well as for the kidneys. And so that reminds us that the main side effects we worry about with the platinum agents is nephrotoxicity and ototoxicity, and as well as having a lot of emetogenic effects. So it makes people really, really nauseous. Carboplatin can also cause cytopenias. So just, again, certain things to look out for.
2: And I, I really think that's so important, what Ronick just said, because we need to assess a patient's hearing and assess their GFR before we even consider giving somebody cisplatin. So there are criteria that are contraindications to cisplatin, and those two are incredibly important. And to prevent the nephrotoxicity, we give lots of fluids to these patients. So bad heart failure is another exclusion to getting something like cisplatin. So knowing that is incredibly important. And the chemo man... Learning it way back in the day for studying for these board exams is actually incredibly useful and, and are very high-yield side effects for these drugs that we give. And cisplatin, in particular, is one of those special highly emetogenic drugs that whenever that's in the regimen, many times we give patients special anti-nausea prophylaxis even days after they get chemotherapy, and we'll get into that a little bit later in this discussion. Dan, there's one more class of agents that we've we've left out, and that's the anti metabolites which is a very broad category. But can you briefly just tell our listeners what this category entails? Sure.
1: Yeah. So, these are drugs that kind of fool the body in, in one way or another by looking a lot like a normal nutrient or a normal sort of cellular building block. What I mean by that is these are drugs that are Say, look like a normal nucleotide, but they're missing a hydroxyl group in a certain place, or they're just slightly rearranged in such a way that the normal biological enzymes will try and incorporate them into DNA, but that stops the DNA replication from that point onward, or disrupts some other vital process in, in purine or, um, or pyramidine sort of metabolism. Examples of this are things like the abines, so citerabine, gemcitabine, cladribine, fludarabine, Cape uh That that suffix, if you hear that, you can think, oh, this is probably an antimetabolite that's messing with nucleoside metabolism in some way. They'll often, because these are small changes in the way these molecules are made, they'll often reference which residue or which sort of part of that molecule has been changed. And so, that's things like 5-fluorouracil. So, it's a uracil that's been fluoridated at the, the fifth position on the ring and 6-mercaptopurine. If you see a number and then a couple of letters separated by a hyphen, that is another thing that can trigger you to think, oh, I'm, I'm probably dealing with an antimetabolite. Another really important member of this class are the, uh, are the sort of antifolates, although those don't quite work in the same way. They're not kind of getting incorporated into DNA. They're not fooling that part of the body system. They interfere with vital parts of the body's way of making these uh, these important nucleotides. And I kind of think of them also as in an anti-metabolite class, but just in a slightly different, they work in a slightly different way.
2: And, and again, the way, and I love the way Dan said this, the way that I always remembered it was if it ends in a bean, bean, citerabine, gemcitabine, fludarabine, then that's this category of drugs or number dash couple letters, 5-F-U, 6-M-P, that's this class, and I always think bone marrow suppression in this category is one of the major side effects is low blood counts. And now I just want to wrap up our case as we end the discussion. Now, uh, so this patient, she got her dose dense ACT, and we talked about the side effects. Dose dense really just meant that she's got higher doses of chemotherapy at more frequent intervals, and we'll talk a lot more about what this means in our next episode where we have a special guest pharmacist actually. But in, for, for my patient, she ended up doing very well. She, we gave her the right medicines to prevent nausea and she didn't have any issues with nausea. And fortunately for her, she did not develop neuropathy. And at the time of surgery, she had a pathologic complete response, which was just incredible. So she ended up doing very well and I'm, I'm, continuing surveillance on her and just just couldn't have gone better and and she knew what to expect and her hair started to grow back and you know it's just it's just a wonderful thing to see and and really gratifying even even though she she knew what to expect what could happen it turned out that she did just remarkably well with the chemotherapy
0: that's awesome yeah nice job yeah it's always great to hear a success story for sure so thank you for sharing that with us well, guys, any last thoughts? Any final thoughts? I thought that was a great discussion. Um And it was a, a really good reminder of the things that I really struggled with when I started fellowship. So I'm glad we're going to make it that much easier for our listeners.
2: Yeah, I just highly recommend anyone who's new to Hemonc, or even if you've done Hemonc for a little bit, just knowing this idea of vesicants and irritants, when to get a port and when not to get a port. And just if you struggle to remember these names, because I I did for the longest time, try to use our simple mnemonics of a bean and rubicin and things like that to help you identify which class of drugs it is, and then try to memorize class side effects.
1: Yeah. And just, you know, major shout out to our pharmacists. Make, make good friends with your pharmacists. Not only are they usually awesome people, but um, they're just an invaluable resource clinically and will save you again and again and again.
2: And I, I can't wait for next week's episode where we have just a wonderful pharmacist who taught me everything I know about chemotherapy.
0: I'm looking forward to it. All right, everyone. Well, until next time, we'll see you later. See you later.
2: Peace.